What's up, creeps? Welcome to a very, very, very special 25th anniversary Brain Stew retrospective on one of the most iconic 90s horror movies ever made. I know what you did last summer. I'm Justin. I'm B Ratty. B Ratta in the motherfucking house. And this week, we are thrilled to once again be joined by our friend you may have heard earlier in the year on our Top 5 Moments of the Scream franchise episode, Ryan from the massive Scream with Ryan C. Showers podcast. First off, just thank you for coming on. I just wanted to ask, Ryan, how the fuck are you, man? I'm fucking good. Oh my gosh, you guys are so much fun. Like, <laughs> so, you guys are so different from my normal my normal vibes. So this is just, I always have such a great time when I'm with you guys. And it's been way too fucking long. Yeah, I'm glad you're back. Yeah, 100% glad you're back. And we had talked about this pre-show a little bit that this episode has been in the making for months and mm-hmm. months. I think I reached out to you actually even earlier than July mm-hmm. about this, which July is usually, I think, the month that most people celebrate this movie due to the, you know, the story revolving around Fourth of July in the movie. I always watch it every Fourth of July. And this year I actually had the opportunity to screen this for my Terror Tuesday program at Alamo Drafthouse DC Ashburn. It wasn't on the 4th because it wasn't a Tuesday, but I did show it on the 5th, and I was actually really excited and happy because a lot of people showed up to see it that had never seen it when I asked that question. How many people have not seen this movie? Like, literally 75% of the theater raised their hands, Mm. and it was really exciting to watch this with an audience and see their reactions and then, of course, talk to them after the movie, and I'll I'll talk about that a little bit later, but thanks again, Ryan, seriously, for coming on. I know you're a super, super fucking busy guy in the podcast world, and Scream is just, I mean, we know what's coming up here soon, so you got to be really busy. I'm busy. My podcast is busy. My Patreon's busy. You know, I'm I'm in law school, so I, and I just have a lot of family commitments. I, I'm busy, but honestly, this is a podcast that I could not miss. Like, I'm so happy that you guys I, and and honored to be honest, because this is a big. If if like if you get it, like you you get it, like you get why this movie is such a big <laughs> yeah. deal. And I was so honored that you asked me uh, to be a part of it and to be the guest of this episode. Like, it just it feels right, and I'm I'm really happy to be here. I love your show. I think you do an amazing job producing it. I, uh, you know, you guys are, if, if Scream with Ryan C. Showers is here, you guys are here. So I, I would like to tell you to get the fuck out of here with that, but <laughs> thank you so, so much for the compliment. We never actually have anyone ever come on that says such things, so that's a huge compliment coming from you. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Sometimes I listen to you guys, and I'm just like, oh, fuck you know like wow you guys are like you guys have such like energy and character and like you guys are so fun and it's just like you guys are shocking in a way like this just with your banter it's like it's just always like it always just catches me like you know sometimes i shock myself with what we do so Mm -hmm. yeah sometimes i forget what i do until (laughs) like three weeks later when someone messaged me and was like that one thing you said on the episode i'm like did i really say that somebody (laughs) says yeah enough with the dick jokes justin and you're like what oh god i i promise i promise there'll be at a minimum on this episode so at least first before we go any further on this movie i know what you did last summer i did want to dedicate this episode uh to Anne hash who plays missy hegan in the movie and she passed away earlier this year and just really brings something special to her role in the movie and her performance uh definitely something that stands out to me as someone that's watched the movie uh probably over 25 to 30 times in my lifetime so just wanted to dedicate the episode everyone else in the movie is still with us and that's fantastic Uh, but this movie when it came out in 1997 uh, with a budget of 17 million dollars ended up grossing 125 million dollars so of course this thing was a massive hit it was post scream 
And that's going to be something that we're going to refer to probably a lot. Secrets that could kill us. You know, uh, they think that there's a man named David Egan, but really, did he kill himself? Who did they really hit? It's like a mystery movie that's masquerading itself as a teen slasher. And Brady, this is something that I always have you do because it's your job to do it. And even if you don't have anything prepared, I expect you to explain to the uninitiated what I Know What You Did Last Summer is all about. Sure, yeah. So uh, the movie follows four teenagers as they are graduating high school, and they are getting ready to start, you know, quote-unquote, the beginning of their lives. And after a fun, frivolous night on the beach, they're taking a a ride up the coast of North Carolina that looks a lot like California, and uh, they end up hitting somebody. (laughs) A little, yeah. And um, then they are struck with the morality of what do we do how do we react and you kind of begin to see the character development and they dump the body and then a year later they start getting letters saying i know what you did last summer and it becomes a cat and mouse game um which is what i really like about the movie that we'll get into uh but it's more of a cat and mouse game of them being stalked and then eventually starting to get picked off one by one until there's this big reveal at the end of who actually is the fisherman yes so Words to the wise, if you've never seen the movie, don't listen until you have, because we're going to just talk about the entire movie. Spoiler filled, literally everything, nitty gritty, deep and dirty, wherever it goes. And before (laughs) we actually go any further, I just wanted to mention the fact that if you haven't yet, if you are a fan of the movie... Uh, Sony just released a beautiful 25th anniversary 4K Ultra HD edition of the movie, and that was partially (laughs) my selfishness in postponing the recording of this because I really wanted to watch that version, Um, and it did not disappoint. A thrilling, beautiful restoration, and it did the movie justice, so... Pick it up. I believe I got it for like $20 on Amazon, and great new artwork. You know, it has the old artwork on it as well. Check it out, but I wanted to open this up real quick and kind of ask around the room here, because this movie is based on a novel by Lois Duncan. Have either of you read the novel? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So both of yes. you, I'm the only one that hasn't. <laughs> so I'm the only loser in the room here. All right. So Ryan, you're our so guest Dustin here. Dustin so can't read. <laughs> I, well, I, I could read my notes right now and make sure I can, can you? properly say that the author's, <laughs> did I say it right? L- yeah. It's Lois, not Lewis, right? <laughs> It like, is. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure it's Lois, right? Yeah. You're yeah. like Leah Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, but, so it, yeah, no, it's all right. Yeah. Beat me up seriously. Bust my balls. You know, pull them off and throw them out the window if you want. There's one. But, so I'll start with you. So you know, you've read it. So how does it compare in, in your viewpoint to the movie? I think the the way that I describe the book is, I think it's a mediocre book that Kevin Williamson and I. As a screen person, I know it may be sacrilegious for me to say this, but I almost think that Kevin Williamson's writing achievement in 1997, I would, I think the strengths of Scream 2 are not the screenwriting. I think the strengths of Scream 2 are Wes Craven's directing and the character development and the acting. Uh, I think his script in Scream 2 is actually probably the uh, the lightest script of the five movies. So compare that to what he does with I Know You Did Last Summer, which he takes a very mediocre book and makes it more daring, uh, you know, riskier. He incorpor- he takes the best things about the book and makes it his own and updates everything and makes it edgy and cool and match the modern moment that he kind of created with Scream. So it's really like a, a marvel of imagination in my opinion of how he adapts the book like it is a true adaptation uh it's uh, 
what Kevin does with the book is great. The book itself, very mediocre. It's fine. If you love the movie, if you're a big fan of the movie, you should read the book once. I've read it once and it's just okay. Yeah, no, I I, would. I almost bought it on Etsy just because I saw the cover. It looked cool. Nah. I was like, it'd be cool to have. I would just no? echo the no, same Brady? thing. I would echo the same thing as Ryan. Like, it's it's a fine book for a, like a once through, especially if you're a fan of the movie, which is what most people I think do now. But yeah, I, I think I would even say that this is probably the best writing of Kevin Williamson's career in terms of characters. Like, I actually Ooh, prefer okay. his shit. writing of these characters <laughs> to the original Scream movie. Um, Ryan, I know you're seething over there. I'm sorry. I, I love not, you. <laughs> I love Scream. I, I, mean, I love Scream. But I think the characters in this one are just like it just I think they're written better. And I think maybe it's just because he's adapting it from a story and he has maybe more to work with. But I, I just think that they're more natural as teenagers than some of the things in Scream. Scream is very, very close. I'm not saying anything bad about Scream. I want to get that right on How recording. How dare you, Brady? Because I love you the just, characters You just signed your own resignation I on I just show. think that this you is really... You invite me on, and then this is what I get. Yeah, I said this is actually going to be a shit on Ryan episode. going to fucking love you, yeah. Brady. Um, I, but go ahead, go ahead. I don't disagree. Like, I, I, think that the, I think the characters, and I know you did list them, are so strong. I mean, Ray, underwritten possibly, but yeah. I think what the actors bring to the characters, I think the way that they're like etched out is very distinctive. They're memorable. Like, I feel like we get to spend an intimate amount of time with each of the four characters and when you combine the way that each of the actors embodies them like they're almost all iconic in their own right like i i agree with everything you said except for saying this uh, it's it, the comparison to scream okay. that's okay i also don't agree with that well then idea i disagree with you justin that, brady that's fine you can disagree all you fucking want because i'm always right on this show and you're not right right we went over you this can, in you can pretend you're it. right no but um you know i understand your viewpoint on it because that's the one thing that i, I walked away uh, you know, just watching it tonight for like whatever the thirtieth time mm-hmm. uh, is that I do feel like the the kids are are natural and they feel real. And when you compare it to, you know, the slew of the eighty slashers that I so love and deeply adore and obsess over, you know, the decades worth of this genre, they are and they feel much more natural. Mm-hmm. Um, I bring up the novel specifically because I I had read that the author hates the movie yep. so much so that they were claiming to be appalled in an interview and th- that something to do with their youngest daughter was actually murdered by someone in 1989. <laughs> their hate against the movie, just because the book, apparently I didn't read, but like no one dies in it. No one gets killed and they get killed in this. Yeah, correct. I'm sorry. I'm laughing. I shouldn't be laughing at this, but like, it's so funny to me. Like somebody died, Ryan. How do you? <laughs> I'm sorry. Like I, I just I can't. Like I just you know I, I I'm I'm too cynical for this. No, the book is it's very tame, and like mm-hmm. all four people survive. And I think you know people. And we'll get into this, I'm sure. But like people criticize the death of Helen specifically um, often, and I think that the, there is so much power that comes from both Barry's death and Helen's death that when you compare it to the the book, you can see just how effective it is. Even if people love Sarah Michelle Gellar and her amazing performance here, and the amazing character that Helen is like I think that they needed to go like Kevin again that was a great instinct that he had when he took a book and made it his own so yeah I couldn't agree more about that and I'll definitely be getting to that a little bit later I was just gonna say and I'm sure we'll get into it too but the biggest thing about you know the book that he took away in his adaptation was the morality at at the root of it Mm -hmm. right Of, of the decisions they have to make and how it follows them and these characters are given chance after chance after chance to right the wrong to fix their morality and they don't and I think that's what is so great about the death scenes of Barry and Helen is like they're two characters who just are doubling down at every turn they can 
and it's like they're given chances. So I, I really do like that. But as for the author, yeah, I think they said like her, her daughter was killed in a, like by gun violence. And so she didn't like that the slasher aspect crept into the adaptation or not crept in, but became the adaptation. And, and so she was really, really against it. But I mean, I mean the movie's still about someone stalking teenagers, right? So, I mean, the, the book is rather. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's whatever death or no death. I'm going to get right now to my initial thoughts on this movie and I'll pass it around with you. Just to give our listeners some insight on how we feel about this movie before we go any further, um, I'm a massive fan of this movie, for sure. I have been since I saw it in 1997. I've always felt like it's much more of a strong teen mystery thriller than a straight horror slasher flick. And being the huge slasher fan that I am, that's kind of strong, like strange for me at least. Sure, it has scares, it's sexy, and it's suspenseful, but with a great amount of atmosphere uh, backed by John Debney's beautifully haunting fucking score i can't say that enough i mean every time i hear that score i used to have a copy of it i no longer do that needs to be released on like vinyl or a special edition cd set or something i felt this was an intentional move by both williamson and director john gillespie uh who really put an effort in to make something more than just a traditional slasher movie brady uh yeah when was the first time when was the first time you watched this movie because we know that you are our resident west craven on this show where you were not allowed to watch anything but fucking dumbo a million times when you were 10. Uh, I don't think I was allowed to watch Dumbo because there was alcohol in Why? it. Why? Because the transformation scene was too scary? Because there was alcohol in it. The pink elephants. Oh, there's alcohol. And there's a cigar, too. There's smoking uh, yeah, and alcohol. Well, you know, yeah. oh, I should probably revisit that. Now, this one was another one that I saw like bits and pieces of as a kid. So I always come back to AMC Fear Fest, and it's that time of year now, too. But they were like, when they would show a preview on AMC for Fear Fest, they would have like, you know, different clips of movies. And there was always like Halloween 4 was in there, Halloween was in there. Um, and then this was one that always popped up too. Is this, and then there was a movie with Nick Carter, I think that was like the hollow or the hollow. This one always popped up where Helen looks in the mirror and I was like, man, like what the fuck is that? And then I even asked my dad about it once as a kid and I said, oh, what's like this movie? And he was like, yeah, it's called I Know What You Did Last Summer. And he had actually seen it, which was really weird to me. But I saw it in high school. I think I was like 16, 17 and just watched it at a friend's house. And uh, I fell in love with it immediately. Like, I mean, look, to be honest, Jennifer Love Hewitt was the only reason that I really was interested in it at the time. And then like when I got into it, I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. And then revisiting it as I, you know, began my quote unquote horror journey. It's just a solid film. And I I think that it's really that one right after Scream before you kind of go down this really bad garbage disposal of movies like this one really gets it right i think in the in the post scream era um so i'm gonna get really mad at you if you consider some of the movies i love after this in the garbage disposal brady but yes and i will say this so many times in the i mean 97 was i was seventh grade i had literally photos of jennifer love hewitt like taped to my wall and stuff maxim magazine literally everything definitely definitely obsessed but i love freddie prince jr you have pictures of him posted on your wall no but he was fred and scooby-doo and like i was able to like watch that like in the secret so you know, like that one was a little more accessible. That was one to me. thing that I was talking with my wife about is she she rewatched this movie. She knows it's like an annual thing for me, and I, I had to ask her opinion. I said, "Yo, so because she's two years older than I am," I said, "Well, when this movie came out, you were like a freshman in high school. How how big were Ryan and Freddie for you in terms of like sex symbols and you know guys that you know girls would." think about and talk about for movies and she said they were both massive especially freddie she said so hmm. uh ryan what was your first introduction <laughs> to this movie well that was a heck of a, a transition from like you know the sex symbols which i would love to weigh in on like you know go for can it. I have them both at go. the same time like give you know, it god but if you could only pick one <laughs> i would choose ryan Philippi. like i mean yeah. i don't know i love it yeah. i love a himbo so you know freddie prince jr <laughs> 
you know, I'll take him. But I've, I, I, and he's tall. I like that too. But um, Ryan Phillippe, I love the attitude. I, Barry's yep. an asshole, and unfortunately, I like Massive guys prick. who are assholes. Uh, yeah. Yep. But what what are you gonna do? You like what you like. In in regards to the film, my overall thoughts are: I don't really like it. I'm joking. I love it. It's one of my favorite. I was movies. waiting for like, that. Justin's face I don't think, was I don't about think he, <laughs> No, I was just waiting seriously to like, where's that? Where is it going here? You're like, oh no, I relate. Because to be clear, we well, we never actually have spoken about this when I asked you to be on the episode, mm-hmm. uh, so I had no idea what your opinion was on the movie. Like deeply rooted into what the movie is. No, I love it. I absolutely love it. It is. Um, as much as it is nostalgic for me, it's the type of movie that like it divides horror fans, you know, left and right. Like a lot of people either if you get it, you get it, and if you don't, you just think it's average, whatever. And those those naysayers sometimes creep into my head and like make me take it from like you know my ten to a nine or an eight, and then I rewatch it and it's just like it's magic every single time. Like it's just it's so engrossing, it's so watchable. I absolutely just like you know every time I watch it, I'm just overwhelmed by how much I love it for the atmosphere that you guys described. I think the direction here is top notch. I think the cinematography like it is really scary. I love the characters. I love the vibe. It feels like home. It feels like it's a a cousin. It literally feels like a cousin of Scream in the same way that H2O does. Yeah. I couldn't agree fucking more with that. All three movies that I absolutely love and adore. And we all know. I mean, we have Scream to thank for this very short-lived period of a slasher or whatever teen horror resurgence. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of movies and a very short amount of time and then it like died and then it kind of went away for a while until much later on i'm not sure if this is true or not but i was told that kevin wrote the script for this Mm -hmm. before scream even came out Mm -hmm. i'm not sure if that's true or not it is true can i just ask because like i i watched i've watched i know what you did last summer at least i've watched it twice in the past month and I've always linked them together just because that's what you do. You know, whenever you have such a monolith thing like Scream, you just push I Know What You Did Last Summer and conflate it, even though I don't think that they actually have that much in common. Um, the, besides the allure of it all and besides the hype of it all, they're so different mo- movies, in my opinion. Like, you've, Justin, I love that you've, like, announced I Know What You Did Last Summer as this kind of mystery-centric as opposed to a slasher because it's kind of a slasher by default, but it's not a particularly gruesome or bloody slash. Like people complain and like bitch about Scream 3 not having blood. I know what you did last summer has even less probably. Like it's, it, but the beauty of I know what you did last summer is the characters and the mystery and the way it unfolds and the suspense and the atmosphere. That's really the beauty of it. And it just happens to be a movie that came out around Scream. Yeah. And I mean, this landed only two months before we also saw Sarah Michelle Geller show up in Scream 2 in December of that year, 1997. So, I mean, that I feel like the impact of the two of these movies coming out in that close of a vicinity with one another really just cemented like this thing is successful. These movies can live again. And and I'm so happy for it because this period in horror is one of my favorites of all time. Yes, it is. There is a part of nostalgia that is taken into context when I think about why I love these movies. But like Ryan just perfectly said, when I revisit them, you know, Unlike Ryan, I don't consider what the fuck any, anyone else says to me because I just don't care. Um, that's what kind of movie critic that I am in my mind. Like, but I, but I, I'm open to myself changing my own mind if, if maybe you know, I, I, I watch something and it doesn't land the way that I remembered it. But no, this movie lands every single time for me, and it is different than it is now. But this was that period, like we were talking a few uh, minutes ago, about when 
you had to cast like beautiful people in every role. Mm-hmm. I mean, like there's not a more beautiful cast than the one here. I mean, it's just literally mm-hmm. they could all be models in this movie. Well, but isn't that part of the '90s thing where I, oh, I feel for like, sure, yes, I feel like the actors here. And I don't want to sound like a dick about like the the actors that are cast in horror movies today, but I just feel like actors. It, it made it so much more fun whenever you had like TV actors like that were on every week because when back when TV was 22 episodes a, a year, like when you had Buffy Summers and Jennifer Love Hewitt yeah. from Party of Five, like those kind like having those stars made it different and it made it quality. And I just think that level of talent, like, you know, they are all beautiful. Like they're beautiful and they're emotionally available to their characters. That makes such a difference. And that's why these movies in the scream era, which is what I call like the nineties, like, you know, 96 through 2000, why this era is so remarkable and why it's so special because you don't really have that because now they just hire horror actors on the cheap and it, there's not that same quality. That's true. And much like you just said, that's the good thing about this movie and the majority of the movies from this period, they're all good looking, but they're all good actors. And for the most part, they're likable in their roles. Even someone that's like Ryan who's playing Barry, who is the biggest asshole dude. Like that's the guy that used to beat me up in high school for sure. He's a dude that tripped me because my Jenko pants were, you know, they were too large and I was tripping over myself. He tripped me. He beat me up against a locker and told me I was a, you know, a derogatory term, if you will. But you still, you still, he's still likable. You, mm-hmm. you still find yourself like connected to the character and his performance. And I have no issue with that. And I actually agree. I feel like sometimes in horror movies today, not only do they cast just horror actors, but they cast people that they feel will be more relatable to the audience when in essence, what they're actually doing is they're making an un like they're not as memorable to me. Mm -hmm. At least they don't have a look or something that minus their performance. They're just their, their visual image of who they are as this character is not something that it will be cemented into my brain. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but just we'll be covering Hellraiser, the new one, on an episode before this one lands, but I'll be talking about that in that episode where you just got to cast memorable people. You know what I mean? Not just actors, but someone that has something, a visual flair. It's a visual medium. And I think in this movie, you remember these characters because they all are so specific. Their their characters are so different and they look so specific. They're so different from one another. Well, and can I just say, like, I think that they cast the couples so well here. Like, this is these couples have so much chemistry. I think, honestly, Sarah Michelle Gellar and Ryan Philippe, between this and Cruel Intentions, I don't mean to sound like the, you know, the 90s horror that I am, but, like, they are one of the best on-screen couples, like, yeah. ever. Like, they are, like, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, in, in my eyes, like, between these two movies. They have such chemistry. They're so magnetic. Like, I, I just think that they are awesome uh, as a couple on screen i also a massive fan of cruel intentions yeah and i'm I'm not at all sorry for that i won't apologize for that another (laughs) huge movie for me but moving along here i mean this movie has so much to talk about i mean one of the behind the scenes things that i did not know until recently and i want to bring this up before we get to the actual movie the the iconic scene it's a gif it's a meme you know that what are you waiting for, huh? I didn't know this until recently when I was prepping for my intro for my screening of the movie. According to a 2018 interview with US Weekly, Jennifer Love Hewitt claimed that this scene was directed by a child. And the scene was directed by a child who won a contest to come on and create a moment for the movie. And it became literally the biggest fucking part of this movie that everyone <laughs> quotes. Like, anywhere you go, like, I'll hear that quote at the bar. Yeah just randomly and people will just yell that shit she claims that he came on the set and he's like i wanted to stand in the middle of the street and turn around and just scream what are you waiting for 
And she was like, are you kidding me right now? This is what I'm going to do. And then later she claimed it was a great idea. And because it's memorable. I mean, she's like jumping up and down and like she's bouncing all over the fucking place and she's yelling this line. And it sounds like a scene a kid would write when you think about it. But yeah. I never knew this until recently. And I was like, all right, okay, now that kind of makes sense. Because it's also a scene I feel like when you watch it with a group of people, maybe some, maybe slightly intoxicated everyone always laughs at this scene or like claps or something well i mean a a common thing with this movie and scream is like i always get some scenes mixed up from scary movie (laughs) so like whenever they they, yeah because you're part of whenever they hit the fisherman you know and he's like oh my god it's a boot that's all i can think of like when they find the body (laughs) and uh you're so basic hey we invited you on here okay you don't need to basic brady (laughs) Okay, I kind of like that. That could be my new uh, my new Instagram that handle. Would, that would be your Donald Trump name, like how he gave everybody like a name when he ran. Like you would be Basic Brady. Basic be ready. <laughs> mm-hmm. Basic be ready. Um, I also I also was the guy that was going to see all these movies in the theaters, and then would subsequently go to the theaters to see the scary movies, which. I was angry that they were making fun of the movies I love, but at the same time also really enjoyed them and would laugh my fucking ass off at them. Hey, whatever. I own all of them. But (laughs) this movie opens, and I just got to say, how amazing is it that the opening credits of this movie feature an awesome aerial shot of the ocean with typo negatives, summer breeze blaring in the background. Every single time I watch this, my inner 14-year-old goth inside myself just screams with joy. Yep. Because for me, when I was 14, I was literally listening to that album like every day. And it was shocking to me when I saw the movie. Like, well, they're putting like an actual goth metal band song in the opening of this movie. It's so dreary and spooky, but adds to that mystery element. I, I, I'm pretty sure looking at the both of you, neither of you have probably ever listened to Typo Negative no, I have. ever. Oh, you have? It's huh? usually right after I watch this movie, I go through their discography and I'm like, oh man, I like this song. I like this song. Nope, don't like that song. Well, I mean, it opens with that really low chord, yeah. you know? I don't know. It's just, the movie has one of the best soundtracks out of any of the movies during this era, uh, fantastic songs that pop up in and out in this movie and add to the movie. I know in the world we live in now, a needle drop is whatever, like we expect it. And it's always a song where like, oh yeah, that makes sense that this would be put here. But in this movie, I feel like the songs actually accent the scene and and actually enhance them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, I don't know, like it's just echoing what you said about the summer breeze cover at the beginning it's like especially that haunting like when he's all breathy and it's just like over the riff and it's like going right over the ocean like it's just i don't know it always gets me in the mood it's haunting yeah Yeah. it's very spooky too and it's like mysterious especially to everyone that has never heard of typo negative because they're like what the fuck is this weird goth music in this guy you look up peter Steele and you're like oh my god yeah which has also passed away yeah r.i.p god rest his soul or Satan rest his soul. I'm pretty sure he was a Satanist. I'm pretty sure, yeah. <laughs> Either or. But we're going to get into the movie. So, I mean, the movie opens. And I think that one of my favorite thing about this movie is is 
I love how it kicks off with our core group of characters just telling versions of this urban legend about a guy <laughs> I literally, with a hook. I'm sorry. I thought that you were about to say how it kicks off with typo negative again. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? Did I, did I just repeat my... Brady, I'm not that intoxicated. I was, I was ready for it. I'm not as intoxicated as these characters are on this beach that will lead to some terrible things. I'm not going to go get in my car after this episode and run over a guy down the street. You okay? don't know that. Well, if there is like an accident in Virginia, we'll know who's at fault. Right. We'll, we'll be scouring the papers. What are you trying to say here? What are you trying to say? <laughs> I'm saying that Ben Willis is walking around your house right now. I'm trying to say that next Barry. time you kill someone, make sure they're dead. But how great is this opening, though? I feel like we get an introduction to these characters and <laughs> lines like Eat Me, accompanied with one of our main characters winning a local beauty contest, the is Croker immediately Queen. confirming yeah. this is a 90s movie. Like, it mm-hmm. makes me yearn for the good old days, but I'm like, oh, this would never happen today. Yeah. yeah. A twit with a wit. <laughs> I, I love that line. There are so many funny, iconic things about I Know What You Did Last Summer in the writing and the dialogue. And I think that is, if anything, the most relatable to Scream is the Kevin Williamson sense of humor and the almost like Aaron Sorkin nature of his dialogue. Like I think that is like the one overlap I see. Um, but the, the 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 dialogue here is so memorable. Like, there are, it's you know Helen's like you little shit stick Mayberry ass reject. I know that's not in the <laughs> opening, but you know there's I, I think that one thing that's really strong about the opening and why the character development is so successful is because of the, of the interactions between the characters in that first 20 minutes before the accident happens. Uh, it, it sets them up really well so that whenever the accident does happen, it, it, it all makes more sense to us and we're taking sides and we are more emotionally invested um, than we would have been if they would have just opened with the car ride. For sure. And also, it leads us to believe that these relationships are extremely strong with one another. Like we're mm-hmm. going to see these two cemented as couples throughout the rest of the movie. We know after this incident occurs, they're not going to, and it it adds a very human realistic element to it because we know that in real life, usually when trauma occurs within a relationship, like especially if you like are involved with killing somebody, yeah, you're probably not going to stay with that person. Cause every time you look over like, honey, will you get me some coffee? Oh yeah. We killed that fucking guy last summer, <laughs> you know? Um, can I counter that? Like, I think if I killed somebody with somebody, I would actually. I think that bond would make would bring us closer together. Like, oh, nobody else can understand us but each other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For Ryan, sure. Did you just watch the the recent Jeffrey Dahmer <laughs> I, series or something? I did actually. Okay, <laughs> I watched I did it this too. weekend. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying here. Like, I'm getting some some really weird vibes over here. Like some. Like you might have a knife underneath your couch that you're sitting on right I'm, now. I'm good. I'm good. He said, "We're okay. gonna." I told you, we're gonna watch. I know what you did last summer, and then you can leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I oh, would funny. just also say that it's the the movie with the first twenty minutes, and that really just shows the like this idea that I think we all encountered as teenagers. Justin might still feel it today. Is like this invulnerability well, I still think of I'm a teenager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like you when you're yeah. that age, you don't think anything's going to happen. You think you're going to be with whoever forever. Like you think if you're with a high school girlfriend or boyfriend, you're you're with them for the rest of your life. And then it's like things set in, and like you go to school or you don't, and then something as big and traumatic as killing somebody. Like it's just. It, and then when it comes back a year later to show them all at the different stages of their life and their grief process, like. I think it just does a really, really good job. And and going back a little bit before that, you know, just to 
you know, talk about one of the most powerful scenes in the entire movie. Um, you know, what is this crap as Barry changes the music uh, from <laughs> what sounds like Sarah McLaughlin? It's probably not, but to Mighty Mighty <laughs> fucking Boss Tones. This is when ska was a thing, right? So that just shows how dated the movie is, but I still love it. Kids today will be like, ska? What is that? Um, and in his drunken fiasco, he, he like changes the music and it leads to him dropping the bottle in the car. And then, of course, Ray is confused by the situation and hits a fucking person with his car Mm. and i feel like how they handle the scene the writing and the performances is very real like Mm -hmm. how real like kids during that time frame you know just graduated high school have a lot on the line they've got stakes how they would actually deal with a situation like hey we just hit a human being Mm -hmm. and we don't know what to do with it yeah Good. So the thing that I love to think about with this scene is the different perspectives and to see how where each of the characters, how each of the characters is specifically reacting. Like I love how Helen, she kind of stays out of it the whole time for being like the dominant like breakout star of the movie. She's kind of very passive in the opening, which is one of the biggest set pieces. But it's just so interesting to me to see how the super rich guy reacts versus the girl with the single mom who is like the moral center of the film and is going to law school and has these like ambitions and you know versus the the beauty queen who's middle class and kind of gotten everything that she's wanted kind of but and then also ray who's the 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 poor fisherman like i think seeing how they're like where each of the characters come from and how that informs their choices here is so uh interesting and i think uh, very deep for a slasher movie yeah and i think I go back to, Ryan, you said it earlier where like sometimes people get in your head about like, oh, maybe this movie isn't as good. And one thing for me is, has always been people are like, their arguments about what they, like how they shouldn't turn in the body are always weak. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I'll think that, but then I go back and I'm like, well, that's what a fucking teenager would think. Like that's what a 17 year old, 18 year old Mm -hmm. would think is, oh my God, my whole life is in front of me. And if I turn this body in, like the cops are then going to say that I was drinking or they're going to smell alcohol in the car. Like they're, the four of them are constantly shooting down, doing the right thing to each other. Like they're all just enabling each other because, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, Ray, you were driving. And he's like, okay, well, you know, Barry spilled the liquor in the car and they're going to think that Barry was driving because it's his car. And you're like, well, not really. They would investigate. But in that moment, you're like, no, that makes total and complete sense to think like that and then make that call. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, and no, I do. I agree with that. Like, I think it's really telling that they... I love that Julie is the odd man out here. She is, like I said, the moral center of the movie. She is the the one that the audience probably most agrees with uh, because the two guys... I mean, Barry has a vested interest in keeping you know because he is wealthy like it's different you know Mm -hmm. and ray because he was driving they both have very vested interests you know his car he was driving and helen and she's just kind of going along with barry i don't want to make sound sexist but like that's kind of the way that she's positioned here like she doesn't really i think helen is a very tactical character and she's not rocking the boat um she's very calculated and very realistic you'll see this again in her scene with julie in the car um, whenever julie's going on and on about oh we destroyed this family and helen's like i don't think we're that powerful i think helen as much as she's in the background kind of going along with what barry wants she is kind of playing the field in the most what she thinks is pragmatic way whereas julie is just coming at it from the moral perspective and it again like it's i think like what brady said it shows their youth and inexperience but also I think it's it's just it's a very human thing to do to try to get out of something like this. I don't know. So let me ask this: If the three of us were driving, mm-hmm. let's say we hit up a winery, and we're all <laughs> yes. getting a little sloshed, 
and we just randomly hit some guy crossing the road. What's going? What? Who is Justin? You're Barry in this situation. We don't even have to ask that. So like. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I, I'd immediately take the blame because I'm. I already know my criminal. If past, it was your I'll car, would say, you take listen, the blame? I'll take one for the team. You all got clean <laughs> records, so yeah. I'll just. I'll, I'll take this one, whatever. And they're going to come and look at me anyway and look at you. Look at Ryan. Ryan, go, you're in law school, so you're Julie. Look, mm-hmm. It was him. Yeah. It was that dude. Look at him. Yeah. He did it. I can mm-hmm. be the poor fisherman. <laughs> That's cool. I'll take one for the team and be Freddie Prince Jr. That's okay. Take one for the team, huh? Yeah. yeah. He still looks amazing, by yeah, the way. Yeah, he does. Remember Anyways. that time we were at a convention and we walked up? And I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to relive that because I didn't get his autograph. We took a picture of him. And did, oh, because we didn't meet him. We yeah. should have. I met yeah, Chris but you wanted to meet instead. Chris Randon instead. You were like, I'm going to go meet Jerry Dandridge from Fright Night. I mean, I'm happy. And then but- we stood there. I'm like, well, I'm going to at least take a picture of him. <laughs> we should have fucking met. But I didn't bring any. I know you did last summer stuff. And then he was supposed to come to Fairfax. The and then, this is for anyways. our listeners that, that love Jeremy, which, by the way, we didn't even say. Jeremy's not on this episode. And he literally said... I don't want to go on that episode because you guys will hate me because I'm just going to shit all over this movie. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but you like it though. And he's like, not really. So <laughs> now you know why he's not on the episode. But I was going to say, you know, uh, to kind of follow up what Ryan was saying in terms of the characters here, Jayla was actually initially offered the role of Helen. That was the part she was offered, but she really fell in love with Julie. Can you see those two characters switched? No, I no. can't. I'm sorry. I I mean, maybe... No, no, no. I can't. Well, they also... I read that, what, Melissa Joan Hart was supposed to be Helen, too, before Sarah Michelle Gellar came on? And, like, I couldn't have seen that, either. Like, the thing is, the movie is perfectly cast. Like, I can't... Like, maybe... I mean, Sarah Michelle Gellar is one of the most talented people on the planet. I'm sure she would have pulled it off. I don't see Jennifer Love Hewitt as, um, as Helen. I just... I don't. No. Sorry. Well, Jennifer Love Hewitt has, like... I don't know. It's got like this natural like vulnerability to her, like in the way that she talks and the way she acts and even the the way she looks like she through most of the movie looks like she is in pure anguish, like emotionally, Mm -hmm. mentally, physically. And I don't think that she could have taken on what they described as warm, but a bitch as Helen. I don't think she could have done that as well as Sarah Michelle Gellar did. She's got that edge also, to her. She, feel, she feels more like, to me, the girl next door, a lot like when you compare to Nev and Scream. Mm-hmm. That's what they're going for. I mean, they both have the bangs in their first movie, and then the second movie, they get a much better haircut. Just going to say it right now. Mm-hmm. Thank yeah. you very much. I, the one thing in 4K today, I was like, man, you can see how bad those bangs are in this one again. I, Oh, her bangs are terrible. Like I don't want to. Again, like I mean, it's not about her looks because I think you're right, Brady. No, she for gets, sure, for sure, she for sure. Old. But I'm, I'm looking at I'm looking at Ryan's looks too. I'm looking at Freddie's haircut too. I'm like, man, I'm gonna do that haircut again right now. I've already got the sideburns. I'm just gonna do it, man. You know? No, she's. I love her. I love her look. I love her hairstyle. I think her performance is even better in the second one. Um, but she's great here. Like it's the the anguish and like you can just tell how much it has worn on her. Um, I think Jennifer Love does a really wonderful job here for all the shit that she gets and all the shit that Julie gets from people. I think that she's actually her performance is up to par here. Hmm. And I and I love hearing, you know, you being on the episode and your experience in the community because you clearly are way deeper into this than I am in terms of the people that would be talking about this on a normal basis. But I was totally unaware that people would be hating on J-Love in this movie. I've never heard a single person hate on her. They So here's the deal. This is new to me. So the deal, I, I don't agree with this. I am a pro-Julie, pro-Jennifer um, Love Hewitt person in the first one. I think, I, I wouldn't change a thing about the movie. I think every decision is made perfectly. But people think that 
Julie is an annoying character, that she's selfish, and that she's mean to Helen, and that Helen is the much more vulnerable, empathetic person, uh, and that she was the stronger character, better developed, Sarah Michelle Gellar gave a better performance, and that Helen should have survived and been the final girl and gone on to do the sequels, and Julie should have died. Um, I disagree with that. I think, again... Kevin Williamson, like he did with Randy, I know you. I know, I know your your attachment with Randy. He really hit us where it hurt in in our hearts because these characters, their deaths, the the, the impact that the audience felt from each of these characters' deaths, um, Randy and Scream Two, Helen here is so massive. It is such a blow. And in Randy's perspective, and I guess Helen's too, they really move the plot forward. I don't. I think that I wouldn't have done it any other way. As much as I love Helen, uh, I think she's the clear MVP here. She needed to die, and uh, her death was effective. And yeah, I don't think uh, it would have been better to also, have the opposite. To, to also comment on that, I feel like at the time, and this is something that I had much later uh, in what I was going to discuss, but we should bring it up now. I mean, I feel like her scenes are probably more memorable in terms of like the actual stalking, the actual suspense, the scary stuff. When she dies, it's a legitimate shock to the audience. I mean, they let her go on and on and live for so long during that entire chase scene, which I have to get into in a few minutes. But you as an audience member, you're rooting for her. You're like under the impression like, oh, she made it this far. There's no way she's getting off. She's not the Janet Lee in this one. She's not the Drew Barrymore. She's at the end of the movie. You know, nope, a goner. Gets a hook or two to the torso next to some dirty ass old tires. That's her <laughs> faithful just like that's how she dies and of course it's not gratuitous in any way or anything and we're going to get to the kills in a minute because i have to because i'm a bloodthirsty gore hound but i I don't i guess i can kind of see people's perspective on that i mean one actor has portrayed an iconic character that people know and love and there is a resurgence in this character and it's so great to see sarah acting again i can't wait to see what she does with this new role i mean she has apparently turned down a ton of shit and um will not do conventions according to her husband based on people that i know that work with him at conventions she said no doesn't even want to sign stuff for this movie so i don't know what her opinion is on it i know jennifer love just literally did a massive signing and signed like literally over five thousand items for i know you did last summer so good for her and for the fans that those of us that would like an item like that we'd both love to meet you in person instead but no it's like i i I want to get your perspective on this that's why i'm asking because i don't see this stuff you do so Mm -hmm. it's interesting to hear that like you know i've never had anyone ever actually say that to me that they felt that you know julie was a weak-ass character because i feel like she's a great character in the movie they see her as whiny and like you know when helen says oh we used to be such good friends and she says yeah well we used to be a lot of things people see her as like not really an active final girl like that she doesn't really do anything to save herself or to fight back in the same way that Helen does that. And I mean, I kind of, I can, I can see the argument. I disagree with it. I, but again, I like Julie. I think that she fits the movie well, and I think she's even better in the second film. So I don't agree with it, but there was like a huge fight about it on my show. Not a fight, but a, a very heated debate about a this. Fight. Yes, a oh, fight. Yes. I love heated <laughs> debates. I miss hated debates on this show. No one ever debates with me. They're all too scared. Right. Okay. I'm just saying right. no one ever dares. Brady, Will you dare to one of these days? Will you dare? We went at it for Pearl for like three seconds. No, you just said something and I told you that you were wrong about yeah, it. Yeah, I told you, you that you were your wrong. corner and cried. Yeah. Anyways. I don't know. <laughs> but so this is one of the things that we talked about earlier on regarding the movie and it needs to be talked about again. The kills. How much 
the brutality is scaled back. I mean, we get the first brutal kill in the movie, which, in my opinion, really sets the stakes for how the audience is going to react. And, uh, you know, Max getting the hook through the chin, being pulled over the table with a streak of blood smearing underneath him. Initially, the director said he didn't even want to show a drop of blood on screen at all, much like John Carpenter's Halloween. But apparently the executives that were funding the movie, those movie executives in the late 90s, which ruled the world, pushed him to add more blood and gore. And I recall one of the special effects team members like quoting saying, Jim, this was the smallest amount of blood we've ever used on a horror (laughs) movie. But I feel like those little bits of blood and gore actually complement the movie very well. I mean, even in the best thrillers, a little a little bit of blood if done tastefully. I'm not saying I wanted to see, you know, uh, Johnny's head get ripped off. I mean, actually, I would have loved that. But I'm saying in, in, in terms of this movie, it probably wouldn't have worked, you know? Well, Matt, the way that you described it is exactly the visual that I came into my head. So I think that they did something right where maybe less is more like having that streak of blood go across the table is so powerful. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. I think at least in the, in terms of Max's death, I think Max's death is really well done. Um, Elsa's the blood with Elsa. So what they have a little bit of blood on the, the window that we see. Um, and I can't really think of much else when it comes to gore, but like, um, you know, which that, that, that scene was reshot. That scene with her hitting the the door was reshot to add blood. The whole rest of the scene was already what what, what was going to be the scene, and mm-hmm. then they were like, "No, add blood." And I think it's tastefully done. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You just see the hook go in front of her face, and she just hits her head against the door, and just just a light splatter, rather than like you know, you're not going to see like her whole throat ripped out or anything like that in this movie. In an alternate universe, maybe people would consider this to be more of a thriller than a horror. Like, so let's just say Scream never came out, and I know you did last summer. Just was it's was was an independent entity uh, in terms of cultural conversation. Maybe people wouldn't really even consider this a horror film. Maybe it would just be considered a thriller because of the lack of blood and gore. But the thing about I Know You Did Last Summer is I don't think about the lack of blood as I'm watching it because it is so effective with like the way that they use lighting and the cinematography. And um, it's it, it comes across as such a dark movie and a very scary movie despite the lack of blood. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's one of my favorite things about it is that I feel like the level of suspense builds continuously throughout the movie, especially once they come back one year later. We know what's going on. We know that they're being threatened with these notifications. Helen gets her fucking haircut the day before the parade. I mean, which is I mean. It was something my wife, Danielle, said she was like, that's the most horrific thing about this movie (laughs) is waking up in the morning you know, and having your hair completely destroyed. But when you watch the parade scene, her hair looks great. Her hair looks so is she, is better. Is she wearing a wig? Is she wearing a wig? I mean, come on. They, they should have explained that or whatever. Like, Brady, I'm telling you, how 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 would it she that how is it that she had her hair cut and it looked terrible in one scene she's wearing like a fucking what is it, a, a French beret or something? which were very popular in the late nineties. And then all of a sudden she's in the parade and her hair looks gorgeous. And I'm like, girl, you look amazing. Like 
he didn't, he didn't, he didn't ruin you at all. Clearly, <laughs> she got her hair fixed before the parade. Like I think the they should have <laughs> showed the scene. They should have showed her getting her hair. They don't cut have again. to, Justin. They can just it's it's in the subtext. We can assume that like you know just because we don't see is Hel- it though just because we don't see Ray take a piss doesn't mean that he's not pissing throughout the movie. No, like, he you didn't. Know, he didn't piss that entire time. I know okay. that for a fact. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't change his wife beater either. God damn it! I'm just saying. I'm like. Her hair looks so immaculate, though. I'm like, okay. Yeah, she's Sarah Michelle Gellar. Come on. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, of course, they're not going to let her look name. actually bad in the movie for more than like two seconds. But I'm just saying that's my that's the only. All right, here it is, ladies and gentlemen. This is my only issue with the movie. We don't see her getting her hair redone, recut, permed, okay. but curls. Can, can I just something. say, like. <laughs> For as much as I love this movie, it is a movie's movie. It is a wonderful, entertaining, engrossing movie uh, with amazing characters. There are some logic holes here for I don't want to say plot holes because that makes it sound I don't want it to decrease from the character of the film but like you know for instance like some of the even like the best chase scene in horror movie history there are some plot holes in in that scene like you know how does the fisherman get the music to go out and the lights to go out and while he's under the mannequin like it, it's not it doesn't work you know how does he have pictures of Helen in the parade from you know an hour ago posted on his boat when Julie gets there. There are these logical things, but my view is, I think this movie is more about the experience of it and the ride. So I'm okay looking the other way with some of these things because it's about the effect of uh, of the scenes. And the movie is damn effective. 100%. And that scene that you mentioned is like I said earlier on, one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. And it harkens back to John Carpenter's Halloween. It's that moment where you know that it's it's literally grabbing something from one of the best horror movies of all time and doing an homage to it. And of course, no one will actually mention it, but this is what they did with Helen running across the park to the department store and her screaming mm-hmm. and running. And we have the fisherman slowly walking with the hook. It's literally right out of Halloween. Mm-hmm. But the, the built-up suspense right before she gets into the store door is exactly the same thing. But it's great. And it's it's actually doing an homage, and it's not a ripoff in any way. Mm-hmm. And then the scene continues. Once she's in the store, her sister gets offed, as we talked about a few minutes ago, beautifully, because she's a bitch. <laughs> She great is. performance, though. Yeah. Great she performance. Is, she She's is. a bitch. Like, seriously, why does she hate her sister so much? I mean, they're both really attractive. I mean, come on, just because you work in a department store? Like, you tell so me, hold, you tell hold me, on a second, hold you on can't a get a relationship hold on a in this town? I, I just gotta, I gotta go back here. So, sibling go. relationships are based on how attractive the siblings are, because that would explain okay. a lot about me and my siblings. What are you trying to say? As, I'm asking, is that, looking, is that what you're saying? all looking up to you because of how hot you are, well, Brady? I mean, they should. No, but... so you, how jacked you are and how big your pecs you're are You're saying now? that they should get along, that she shouldn't be a bitch to Helen because they're both attractive? <laughs> I mean... No, Maybe that's well, why she's a well, bitch. Well, I'm just saying she's very mean to her, though. Like, she's unnecessarily mean to her. Like, what is your deal, Elsa? Like, That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Maybe she feels like all of the potential that she had was wasted and that she saw that going into Helen and now Helen's wasting the potential. I don't she's know. wasting her own potential. She's an adult. She well, now she's got the potential wants, of the man. family on her. Well, no, I think Elsa's like the nerdier kind of girl, like the smarter girl who she kind of got stuck 
taking over the family business, whereas Helen is the being she's being doted on by the town, and she's the the queen and the the pretty one and the d- dating the hot rich guy. Like, so I think that there's a lot of resentment there. So whenever yeah. Elsa gets this power over her by be- working as her boss at the store, like she just she just digs deep. Like, and honestly, poor Helen. Like, her father is a deadbeat. You know, her sister's a bitch. Julie, uh, uh, you know, is distant from her. Ray's, um, you know, Ray is barely a friend to her, and Barry's an asshole. Like, she has nobody. Yeah. I mean, but to be fair, to go back to Elsa, I mean, Bridget Wilson, just go watch her in the house on Haunted Hill remake and uh, take those glasses off and do her hair differently and put a fucking dress and heels on her. And my God, she's pretty. Yeah. Just saying, she just is. saying, there, hey, there it is. So there should be no sibling rivalry in terms of the attractiveness. But no. So that scene continues throughout the store. And regardless of the lack of logic that Ryan just completely confirmed there, I, I love the fisherman being hidden underneath the cloak like a, a mannequin. It adds great suspense. Then we have the, the dumbwaiter scene. And then the scene continues out into the streets. I mean, this is the longest stock scene in the entire movie. And I feel like that's maybe why some fans gravitate way more towards, you know, Sarah Michelle Gellar as mm-hmm. Helen in the movie. Because I feel like her scene is way more memorable uh, than anything that Julie does in the movie in terms of like the horror and the scariness of it. And, can I just say this is my fa- literally my favorite chase scene in horror movie history. I think it is Sarah Michelle Gellar's first. It is. It absolutely is. Like even more so than Courtney Cox in Scream Two. Like there is a, because it goes on forever. The way that it's shot, it's so intimately shot. It's so memorable. Like you said, like it takes this thing from Halloween. You know, Kevin Williamson's favorite movie was Halloween. It's undoubtedly you know inspired by it. it makes it. It's. It makes it its own. And there's such a tr- element of tragedy to Helen in this in this scene, right? Like she fight, you know, she fights so hard to get to the end. Once she gets to the end, that's when she, you know, that, that's when he gets her. And it's and then even though that he has her and he's stabbing her and they're fighting back and forth, she puts up such a fight. And that's, I think, the tragic element of Helen is that she literally fights the very end and she still loses and she almost gets there, but just not enough. And that's what's sad. And also sad that she dies with a bunch of old tires yeah in an alley well and the scene but like okay like not to not be serious about it but like you know she sees barry die that is like the beginning of in my mind the arc of helen is like when she sees barry die and that's that's an amazing performance by sarah when she runs into the crowd a bit melodramatic but it's still so good it is and i think i think that's something we didn't touch on but like when she's in the back of the cop car Mm -hmm. and, and the cops being a total dick to her um she actually calls a cop an asshole and he doesn't flinch at all. That wouldn't happen in a movie today at all because no. the cop would probably like beat her to death. But it's one of the best kills in the movie when the mm-hmm. cop gets out and he's like, oh, I got to see what's going on. I'll be right back or whatever. And Brady, you know what this movie is from. You know what the kill is pulled from. Please tell me, you know, and you remember the hook to the to the torso and lift it up off the ground. Tell me what movie this is an homage to the hook to the torso and up off the ground. Yeah, the cop being lifted up off the ground while Helen's in the back of the cop car and she can't get out. I don't know why you're putting me on the spot like this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Halloween 2. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Rick Rosenthal. But it's done from the opposite the back. end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just pretty cool. Not not gory at all, but like, I mean, to lift a guy with one arm by a hook in the air, you'd have to be like a power lifter, like probably one of the top five strongest men in the world to lift even a 150 pound guy off the, you know, off the ground, like, no, but it's, it's amazingly done. And it adds this huge amount of suspense to the scene. Cause you're like, well, if he, 
this guy can do this to that guy, this cop, then what's he going to do to her? And that's the beginning of that scene. We should have touched on that earlier, but glad that we still talked about it because that scene is amazing. And mm-hmm. it is a great homage to classic slasher movies because that had been homaged throughout the 80s numerous times after Halloween too. But we are at the end of this movie and I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on the whole ending climax because it takes place on a boat. And I feel like for me, this is where the movie kind of just doesn't go off the rails, but it kind of just sits there and I'm like, I like this, but I don't like my main killer or my main threat to take off his disguise. Scream is one thing that's different because it adds more, I don't know, like a a, a realistic nature to who these people are. But in this movie, when we see the, the slicker come off and the hook just put to the side for a few minutes, it's just like a regular dude. It's Muse Watson. He's just like, Hey, you shouldn't have done this. Now I'm going to kill you on my fucking boat. Like to me, that's how it comes off. And I'm like, all right, like it'd be cool to have him put it back on once she's back on the boat. But it's just now a normal dude who looks like the guy that hangs out at the Seven Eleven down the fucking street, you know, begging for fucking Budweiser every week just saying. Yeah. I mean, I found that I didn't have an issue with it. I, I think it just the, the part that I like the most about it is that where he comes to her rescue and she thinks that. Ray is the killer or is involved with the killer and he is the normal guy who's like just come on my boat because it's a fall it's a small fucking town and like of course everybody's there to help you like that's where she's grown up and then she gets on the boat with them and then there's the reveal sure he could have put the slicker back on but like realistically why would he need to you know like he's just trying to kill her and they're out to see yeah, but it looks cool it looks cooler though yeah I still think he's got a mean enough face and an ugly enough face where like that's scary enough to me <laughs> How dare you say he's ugly, Brady? That's so terrible. I'm saying mean. compared to the rest of the cast who are just knockouts, come on. He Fair. knew what he was getting into. He was like, yeah, I'm here for, to be the killer. Okay. He's like, I'm not reading for Barry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I get your point of view, and especially coming after Sarah Michelle Geller's big scene, I can see how it's a bit anticlimactic, but for me... I've always loved the way they utilize space on the boat. And I think the way that it's cut is really slick. And I like that Julie has this chase too. And it's, uh, she's underneath and with the ice. Like it's very memorable in and of itself. Oh, the ice is fantastic. I love the ice scene. I would say that's probably the most memorable scene for me in the movie. Everything. I mean, I love Helen's chase scene. I love like when she sees her haircut, but I think, the face and the ice is just what always did it for me. Like, that's what I think. Brady, of. Is it so memorable? Cause you can tell that it's just little plastic clear cubes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and not real ice. Cause they would never subject. I said, Jennifer man, Love can you imagine all that plastic just going in the ocean? Anyways. Ooh, rough. Nineties <laughs> mm, were simpler times, but I think it's something unique and not nothing like the slasher. Other movies were doing at the time. So I think it's a cool set piece. I think, to utilize the the space and the, the setting, I think they did a good job at pinpointing an interesting finale, especially since it took place, you know, they dumped the water, the body in the water. So it, takes, it would make narrative sense for a circle, you know, for it to come back to being out in the water. So, I mean, I, I think some of the stuff on the boat works really well, uh, much like Brady just said. Uh, but and, when Ray, seeing Ray fight Ben Willis, to me, just it, it's it feels like 
the most corny of westerns where like let's duke it out right now and there's like a fake punch to here and a fake punch to there and of course we have like go ahead i was gonna say some of the hits that ray took man he would not be getting back up from those come on like I get. Like, I, mean, I know it's a movie, but also like <laughs> he'd be down. We're, we're, well, we're supposed to be led to believe that that Ray could actually face this dude, and we we already saw earlier in the movie where Barry, who's a much smaller dude than Ray, like tackled him, and yeah, he's supposed to be a football player, but he's literally like five inches shorter or some shit. He's like a tiny little. I mean, he's he's lean as hell. I mean, they build him up with the boxing scene, but he's not like a massive dude. Like you wouldn't think of him. And he's a football player or anything. So. Like Ray's taller, bigger, bigger stature, um, but he's kind of like just standing around with his mouth wide open half the movie. Like, how's this guy gonna fight this guy that's been killing all these fucking people? You know. But I mean, suspension of disbelief. Of course, it's a movie. And then, of course, we get our climax where our killer's just tossed into the ocean. He's not like dismembered totally. He's not like brutally slaughtered. He's just like, all right, well, well, we'll, well have to see if we can find him. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, well, all right. In <laughs> yeah. fairness, like, first of all, I love having a climax on the ocean. That's that's always great. But um, and for real shot on the ocean, too. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I have to say, I think that for me, every time I watch the scene and the fact that we do just see him, we don't actually see him concretely die. I think it's done so poetically to have his hand in the hook in the net there's something about the imagery that feels final and you in the back of your mind you know okay they're setting it up for a part two so it's it's not that i feel unsatisfied i i feel satisfied by the way it ends yeah so do i well i do too knowing that there's a sequel that happens after this but (laughs) before we get to the actual end end of the movie and that ending scare we got to talk about the twist in the movie and brady i'm going to throw this to you of course because we know the whole movie revolves around this twist where the movie is leading you down one route and then it switches and changes and then we see our characters realizing that it's not what they thought. How do you think the twist worked in this movie? Do you think it worked effectively? I think it did. I mean, I remember watching for the first time and where they're chasing this lead down where they think it, that they've killed this man named David Egan and that you know they're talking to his sister Missy and it's just like... And then you kind of think maybe Missy is in on it, and you're like, maybe Missy could be the fisherman. Yeah, she's a great red herring, for sure. Okay, like, that really did it for me. And then at the end where, you know, it it turns into being Ben Willis, and and David Egan ends up being the guy who was sitting on the cliff at the beginning, it's like, oh, okay, like, that makes pretty good sense. Like, I liked it. I thought that they, they, they wrapped it up pretty well. You know, when you watch it over and over and over again, sure, you can spot differences. But initially, seeing it for the first time, I said, yeah, that makes total sense. Like, that's really good. Like, that threw me off. Because I was thinking that Missy was going to come back somewhere. And then I had completely forgotten about the and dude at the cliff, on the cliff in the beginning. You totally forgot about him? Yeah. He's like drinking. He's like, yeah. I'm just like, this is a Watching beautiful Watching the fireworks. Gonna, looking at the bushes. Get wasted. Yeah. That's me, dude. I'm, I'm the dude on the cliff right there. <laughs> Fuck it. Got my overalls on. Ryan, how about you? Does the twist continuously work for you every time you watch the movie? Absolutely. I, the, the twist I love I get so caught up in the David Egan backstory like it's because it's very dense like it's almost like it's like comparing it to Scream for a second like it's much more dense than the Maureen Prescott storyline in Scream 1 it's like probably equal to what the Maureen Prescott storyline is in Scream 3 and I love that I love going back and peeling off these layers and I think it's I think it's really effective and it works for this movie because the movie's not like the typical violent, gory slasher. I think it's a nice balance. The story, we needed a a, a serious mystery for the story. I think it makes the movie so much better. 
I also really enjoyed how when you got to Missy, that then Ray gets inserted back into the plot. And that makes him kind of a red herring too, because it's like he was going to see her and trying to comfort her. And it was, it just shows to his guilt too. But then you're like, oh, well, maybe he isn't on it. Like he's the only one who really, you don't know what he's been doing. He's been fishing, but he's been fishing. That's it. (laughs) That's his life. The film gives you a lot of good red herrings. Uh, Max being a a solid one. No one ever actually thought he was going to be the killer, but I mean, it, it does throw a lot at you. And and I, I myself, I feel like the twist always works. I love the way that they, kind of try to figure it's a scooby-doo movie in a weird way and that's why i feel like after this came out they're like hey you know what you get for the scooby-doo movie those two um because you were already in one or two of them those but, two uh you know and they're still together to this day which is insane i just imagine awesome. whoever and was doing it in them. the scooby-doo writing room they're like who are we gonna cast and they're like looking at like stills of I know you did last summer for some reason and there's like Helen and Barry over here and then like Ray and Julian he's like wait a minute and he like cuts them and puts them together he's like oh my god <laughs> Fred there and Daphne it <laughs> there it is so I mean there it is really I feel like we need to get to the you know our final thoughts on the movie and I just wanted to go around the room whoa, again whoa whoa we gotta talk about on- the the final jump scare. That's what I'm talking about. The thoughts on the last scare. Oh, I thought you look said the thoughts you, on the final you movie. Know. Well, no, I'm saying the, our final thoughts on the movie, but I was going to say, look at you getting ahead of yourself there, my friend. <laughs> I was like, I want to talk know about this, this formula. But, you know, we have this jump scare and we all know there's a sequel that exists to this. And then a third movie, which I blatantly give zero fucks about <laughs> at all. And I know most people don't. Ryan, I saw you share like new artwork for like all three of the movies, and one of them features the third. And I'm like, how are they even going to include this? I hate it so much. Literally, I still know what you did last summer is my least favorite movie of all time. Like literally, maybe like my number one least favorite movie. Like I hate it so much. Uh, So it's a disgrace. But so. A year later, in 1998, Julie is in college in Boston, and she enters the shower. She's all happy, like, oh, my God, everything's good. Like, I'm on top of the fucking world. And the words I still know are written and in steam on the shower door. And then, of course, moments later, a dark figure crashes through the glass, and then the movie ends. And that's never referenced in the sequel, ever. But so do you think it's a dream? Like, do you think it was a nightmare or something? I mean, I would love to think it is because it doesn't really make sense. But at the same time, I totally understand that what they were trying to do, uh, which Scream did not do, is hearken back to those old, I'm saying old, what the 80s did, mm-hmm. you know, when you had to have that final scare. And Brian De Palma basically created that with Carrie. Um, where you'd get one last scene, you know, there'd be beautiful music playing, the audiences resting, like breathing normally, like, whoa, that was cool. Okay, these characters that I'm invested in are totally fine. I'm going to go home happy. There's a conclusion. Cool. And then we get one last thing to give us a jolt, you know, and that's what I think this was. I don't think it was an intentionally, like, there was no way for them to gauge or know that this movie was going to be as successful as it was. So it, thematically it doesn't connect at all with the sequel because we know the sequel opens and it's like that didn't happen but i'm still at college you know um so i don't think it's ever actually you know a thing where we're trying to we're trying to understand that this is a, a nightmare or anything like that i think it's just a cool 
awesome throwback to old 80s slashers. I don't know what your opinion is, but... I've always assumed that it was a dream or it was a paranoia of hers that we see playing out. And specifically, cause that's, we see that over and over again in the sequel is this paranoia. And like, she has several nightmares, I believe in the sequel. So I've always assumed it was that because like, but you're probably right. Like I'm probably trying to justify it as a narrative choice versus probably you're but. just saying, go along <laughs> with the style, just have fun with it. Let the movie go out with a bang. And I think that's, you know, that that's what it, that's what it's doing. So and, and and I think it works, but at the same time, we had talked about earlier how the movie is much more of a mystery thriller than a slasher. But I liked that it added that element in there because Brian De Palma, which is one of my favorite directors of all time, in all of his movies, he kind of did the same thing. You know, where the ending would kind of be shocking, or it would do something to really give you a jolt or make you think when you're walking out of the theater. A lot of movies don't do that now, mm-hmm. and I miss that. And I think this movie does that well. I mean, it's kind of cheap in the sense that it's like just her in the shower. And I feel like it's one of the only scenes that actually overly sexualizes Jennifer Love Mm -hmm. um, compared to the sequel, which sexualizes her to the one millionth degree in every possible way. And me as a, you know, ninth grader did not mind that. And I still don't mind it now. But when you look at it within the context of today, that's a no, no, you're not really not allowed to do that or you'll get yelled at, you know, um, well, they over-sexualize um, Ryan Philippe in the, in this film. So, I mean, I, I don't see... And nobody complains about that. In fact, like, you know, the ironic thing is, like, the, and just as another little peek into, like, the, uh, I, the the community is, like, people are obsessed with two things, like, making a memes out of two things. One of which is Julie sucks, pro-Helen, she should have been the final girl. And the other is this, like, uh, people love to make a meme about how hot Ryan Philippe is, and that's kind of, like it for him but i actually really like barry's scene and i wanted to get your opinion do you like the scene at the gym and then with ben willis taking the car and like kind of getting his revenge oh you hit me with your car i'll hit you with your car you dick like (laughs) yeah no that was actually something that i had had thought of to talk about in the episode my only issue with the scene is it's probably one of the most unrealistic Mm -hmm. out of all of them because barry's clearly like i mean he's training he's in shape but He's a small guy, mm-hmm. and if a car of that size hit you and ran you through an entire fucking building, which <laughs> they do, and left you on the pier, you'd expect as a fan mm-hmm. watching this movie that his head would be rolling down the pier yeah. off into the fucking ocean. Um, and also in the scene, he's built up to be such an asshole and such a prick. To go back to what you were saying about the scene, it actually works so well because there's shock there and surprise when it switches to the next scene and he's in the hospital. Mm-hmm. You're like, whoa, he lived through this. Like, cause you can hear him basically yelling and stuff, but you're like, dude, there's no way mm-hmm. that someone actually could get hit. And the way the scene is shot too, it's like from an overhead view, he goes through a con- co- an entire building and you're like, okay, he's, he's a goner. No, he just got a couple bruises on his face and cuts and stuff and he's laying in the bed. But I mean, I feel like every character is put together perfectly here and all the performances are put together perfectly here. And I feel like Ryan is sexualized in a way where at the time, the majority of the audience was unaware of the fact that he would actually convey himself in a positive light to the gay audience as well and to everybody because he's hot as fuck in this movie. Mm -hmm. He's hot as fucking cruel intentions. He's hot as fuck in everything he did during this period. Maybe it's intentional. I'm not. Oh, I'm, I'm not 
fully aware. I mean, who knows what Kevin was saying? I mean, I don't know how much he was on the set or anything. But he, he I'm just I'm just saying in terms of like having that element because he's attractive to both sides. Mm-hmm. To every side. <laughs> Kevin's like, keep it rolling, keep it rolling, keep it rolling. Let's see his keep abs it, uh, more. <laughs> well, because, I mean, he, he, I mean, make no mistake, that jawline, I mean, he's just in perfect shape. And as much of a prick as he is, I said it earlier in the episode, not to go off on a tangent, but he, you find yourself connecting with him and you find him likable, even though he's a fucking asshole, which means it, it, it's a testament to not just how he looks, but his performance as well. And how the character is written. Can I just add, I've one of this, one of my favorite moments from the movie. And I think that really does a good job at um, making this couple uh, so realistic and something you can root for, especially on Barry's half is whenever Barry looks back at Helen, when she's on the float and they kind of exchange like a little smile and they're kind of making fun of yeah. the, that is such a touching moment. And I think that goes to humanize him. I think she does a lot to humanize him as a character. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think that, it shows a really good complicated relationship like there's love there but there's also a lot of bad things between them and they they just they can't they can't get past it and so they're not together anymore but there's still that love where they're like oh yeah like we had good times like we can still enjoy each other and and then like you know that something bad's gonna happen right afterwards so like you know that once you're getting those looks you're like all right one of them's gonna die and then they both die I'll also say this, and this is to compliment Barry and Ryan's performance. I feel like we're always led to believe that a lot of what he's portraying is a facade for sure, because I've known those guys. I mean, (laughs) I've hung around a lot of them. Tough on the exterior, on the interior, you get them alone in a room and you talk to them for five minutes and they're, they're totally just chill and relaxed and it's just something they put on. It's a, a defense mechanism, you know, and I feel like this is Barry probably where he's a prick a lot of the time because there's, I'm this football guy. I got to be this guy. And that's the world we live in now. And in a weird way, the movie touches on that. And and I don't know if that's Kevin's writing or if it's just Ryan's performance, but it really does touch on like that. And and I dare say this, but the toxic masculinity that really is a thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm subject to this as well myself, but I mean, he's this tough asshole prick. I mean, he's yelling at Julie. He's so mean to her throughout the entire fucking movie. I mean, it, it makes me so uncomfortable. And and Ray just stands there and lets this dude talk to his girlfriend that way. But it's like he, he's not that cruel to his own girlfriend, but he tells her the one line that always makes my wife crack up is when they come back a year later and he's like, you two look like shit or whatever he says. Well, you ever, look, like, you ever looked in a mirror? Yeah. It's so mean. Yeah. That's so mean. You'd never hear that in a movie today. But at the same time, when there's glimpses in his character and his performance throughout the movie where you can see him lighten up a bit and in his eyes and his performance where you can see like he's probably not really this guy. He's just putting this on because of his own insecurities, which is the same thing as a lot of people that act that way today. Mm-hmm. You know, so to go back to that, I mean, I feel like every character in this movie is well-rounded. The entire movie is based on character and atmosphere, suspense. The writing is there. The music, John Debney's score. Seriously, I mean, I I sit here and I champion Marco Beltrami's scream stuff and I still pray one day he will return to the franchise because 
Ryan, you know how I feel uh, about that, and I'll leave that alone. No, for I owe you an episode. apology with that. You know, I you you were right because um, we. I feel like the last time we talked, uh, there, we, there was a disagreement, like not a huge one, but you, I, I concede. Like I, over over the months after the buzz of the fifth movie worn off, wore off, and I kind of came down to earth with it. Um, I I found out that you were right. So. Oh wow, that never happens. Oh ever. my god! But I appreciate that very much. It's just this movie especially did something you know, to compliment what Scream had done and, you know, what came after this. And there are movies that I hope to talk about that came after this. But ladies and gentlemen, we are wrapping up here. And I'm going to do that trash it or treasure it thing. Even though you already know what our answers are going to be, this is going to be our rating of the movie. So trash it or treasure it. Ryan, with you first, do you trash this movie or do you treasure it? Of course I treasure it. Always and forever, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Brady, I already know where you're going to go with this. You already you own the t-shirts. You own the movie, but I got to hear it. Oh, to it's, it. it's a treasure for me, man. I mean, it's, it's there's so many good things that we've talked about in this whole episode, but, you know, it's I, I can always put it on, and it's always going to be reliable for me. And I love the characters. I love the design of the fisherman outfit. It's so simplistic, but yet so menacing. And, and I love the small town setting and I love the ocean setting. Like, it's just, it's all great. So this is always going to be a treasure it for me. I mean, I'm going to get a tattoo of it on my, on my arm. So I already thought you did. I already thought you got the fisherman tattooed on you. No, not yet. It's going to cover up that ghost. You're never covering that <laughs> yes, fucking I ghost. Yes, I am. You're never covering that ghost. It's the worst thing of all time, and you have to keep it for yeah, the rest it's, of your it's, life. It's, like, or I'll just it's my you. mark of shame. It's the mark of the beast. <laughs> Jeez. What but, about you, Justin? Uh, I think our audience already knows that I'm going to treasure the hell out of this thing. It's one of my favorites. Yes, nostalgia plays a factor, but like I said earlier, when you dissect the movie and you watch it from a critical standpoint, you know, I, I review movies for a living on my side job. This is what I do. I feel like this movie, when it first came out, was loved by audiences and not by critics. But I think now there is a resurgence in an understanding and perspective on what the movie was trying to do. And there's a deep appreciation for it. And this is why it needs to be championed. It needs to be discussed. And that's why I'm so, so thankful and appreciative that Ryan came on to talk about this movie with us. Ryan, seriously, you're... You are a champion in the yes. world of podcasting. You are the king of Scream. You 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 might as well be fucking Ghostface at Aww. this point. And I mean, like, seriously, like there there's there's no one that can talk about Scream the same way that you can. And I felt like there was no one better to get on this episode than you. Also, Kevin Williamson said no. Ah, oh, damn! <laughs> wow, you went to Kevin first. I am so offended. Wow. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I never went to Kevin, but. No, for real, though. I mean, I'm waiting. You're going to get Kevin. I'm yeah. waiting for it. You're going to get Kevin. You know, I really want Courtney Cox so bad. Like, I, I thought, I, I really thought, I, I really thought I had her. I mean, you know, I had. Oh, really? Oh, shit. No, I mean, like, I don't know. I, the, the pieces were aligning. It's like, you know, I interviewed Radio Silence twice. I've interviewed Marianne. I've, I interviewed Jeff Astroff, who is like, you know, her bestie because he's making her show Shiny Veil that she's so passionate about. Like, I did a, I did a segment where I reviewed her 
products her home her home i court, saw like, that i saw that yeah like her soaps i mean her her lotion like and which i personally just love but like you know i it didn't happen but i'm holding out faith that one day she will she, she doesn't do a lot of interviews that she doesn't have to so i don't take it personally but you know but thank you for everything you said i um you know i really have a passion for scream for the for this era for movies like i know you did last summer um for halloween which is you know where halloween ends will be coming out by the time probably uh this episode goes it'll out. already have been out and and don't tell me that i didn't invite you to our promo screen because you said you can't make it you invited the shit out of me but <laughs> i have busy law school stuff to do tomorrow but um not, wait wednesday uh so wednesday yes i i appreciate the invite but someday you will have to come and join me and brent at, at the wineries like you are you are right there do you go to the wineries in, uh, down there never because i'm not a wine guy but if i'm invited i will go okay i, I like the atmosphere of wine i'm just uh a vodka guy. Okay, well, so. bring bring your own yeah. vodka and you know, and just you know, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll bring I'll bring my ghost face, you know, tiki Perfect. and for sure. But before we get any further, though, seriously, uh, for our uninitiated guests that are listening on this episode right now that are new to the show, tell them what they can find your show, what it's all about. Scream with Ryan C. Showers. So the name of my podcast is Scream with Ryan C. Showers. I cover all things Scream. It's a podcast dedicated exclusively to everything scream i analyze the shit out of everything scream i love it i have a passion for it i uh, anything you think of i've done 75 episodes by the time this is out i'll i have you know uh, i I can probably do this show for years and years to come i have a lot to cover and i'm i love it i love my community come and listen to me you can find me everywhere apple spotify Airglue media is the network that produces my show i'm on patreon um if you love Scream, if you love the 90s, you really should at least give my show a shot. You, you, I will definitely surprise you. Surprise, entertain, <laughs> and maybe get even slightly aroused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just saying. It Just happens. Saying. The reason why I have so many Patreons is because I'm because I'm a cute blonde boy. So, I mean, mm. what can I say? It doesn't. I was cursed with Brady, the brunette hair. Dye your hair fucking blonde again. I did. We need those likes. We need those fucking <laughs> follows. You did? I can't see no, you like, in the b- darkness, goddammit. I'm trying to make this work, okay? Yeah, do it again, I said. Do uh, it again. Uh, I don't know. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks again for listening. And Brady, don't say you don't know. Do it. Do it. <laughs> you're doing it. Okay, I'm or doing you're it. you're off. Okay. <laughs> Sign your resignation. <laughs> 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 um, if, if people want to find us on social media, where can they find us? Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Epic Film Guys. Um, you know, we're on Patreon, so come be a patron. Uh, we are getting some new stuff set up. It's going to be nice and fun for you. This Halloween season is it's pretty full, but, you know, we got it rolling. Yeah, I mean, iTunes, Spotify, you know, give us a listen, give us a review, even if it's a bad review, even if you want to tell us that Justin sucks. That's okay. I will take that. <laughs> I like if you it want to tell, tell Justin that he's wrong cool. in a review, it's okay to do that. I'm telling you now. Just put it on there. Is it? Is it, though? <laughs> it is, I guess. It is. Bring it on, ladies and gentlemen. We just love, love, love you. We appreciate your support. Uh, this is an episode, um, again, I don't mean to like spooge all over myself, but very near and dear to my heart. And I was so thankful to have Ryan join us for this because I, I had a feeling though I didn't know his opinion on the movie outright. I just had that feeling knowing what he does, what he's best at and what he is most known for. And especially you Brady, because before we started doing this thing together, I always knew how big of a fan of this movie you were. So thank you as well. Sure. uh, Just being 
your father figure and loving you to <laughs> yeah, death. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to make you, you proud, now virtually, well, but for coming on for this one. Can I just say, I love Brady as well. Brady, like, every time you talk, I feel like you have such a interesting perspective and, like, I, you have such a clear perspective, too. Like, every time you, every time you speak, I just, I come away with exactly with what you want to say. Like, I think that you're such a great speaker. I love... Uh, you've been on basically every time that Justin and I have hooked up, uh, you have been, you, you've been on with us and I, yeah. I, I love it. Like, I'm, I'm happy that I'm happy to have you. And Justin, I have to say you have one of the best radio voices out there. Like, and I think that's like, you remind me of, um, my friend Matt from next best picture. Like this, you just have this like, like magnetic radio voice. Like I can entertain and I can be fun and entertaining, but like, I don't have a radio voice in the same way that you do, where you just like, it's like a, a, a magnet, your mouth to the, the microphone. So that's why your show is so great. Oh, thanks dude. I really appreciate hearing that. No one ever says anything like that. Seriously, Brady, are we getting the wrong people to guest on this fucking show? Or should we just like pay Ryan to come on and constantly give us compliments yeah. every fucking time yeah, he's on? Yeah, I think we got to do that. I don't know. Even on <laughs> shitty movies. Um, seriously, Ryan, it, it really does mean the world to us. And it means the world to our audience because I will make this clear right here on this episode before we finish. Our episode with you earlier this year was one of our biggest episodes of the year. And it has... there's a lot to say about that regarding your connection to the scream community our connection to the scream community and the horror community and how many people want to hear us talk about this together it makes me so excited to release this and about the future because we know there's another scream movie coming and we know there's probably more than that coming as well so ladies and gentlemen thank you so so much for listening and until next time i'm justin i'm b ratty And until next time, we always ask you to keep it. Do it, Brady. Do it. I can't do do it. it. Keep it creepy. Do it. I can't scream, man. Just do the creepy part. Just do the creepy part. Just do the creepy part. Do it. Creepy. I can't do it. (laughs) Stop.